Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. On this program, we'll review a number of clinical research developments that are affecting daily patient care in the adjuvant and metastatic setting. To begin, Dr. Charles Vogel discusses the use of chemotherapy, endocrine treatment, and trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. Dr. Vogel began by reviewing psychosocial issues that are commonly present when patients come for an evaluation by a medical oncologist to consider adjuvant treatment. Some of them are a bit dazed. Some of them are angry about what's happened. Others present a more realistic view. We now have something that we know is not that great, and we're going to have to move forward and figure out how to make it better. So the mindsets vary just as every woman varies. I guess one thing you hear in general with almost every type of cancer is the sense of initial shock that most people feel first diagnosis. Now, you're seeing them some weeks later, maybe even a couple months later, but do you still sort of see remnants of that? Yeah, the shock for many women has worn off until we shock them again. Because unfortunately, many of the surgeons don't really prepare the patient for their trip to the medical oncologist. And so consequently, yes, they went through the initial shock of finding out that they have cancer. And then when they come to the medical oncologist, they now get a double whammy because many of them have been told, well, I think you can get by with a hormone pill and you need some radiation because you had a lumpectomy, everything's going to be fine, and then bam, they get hit with, well, I think that probably chemotherapy might be on the horizon for you. And some women decompensate pretty badly because the second most frightening word to most women after the word cancer is chemotherapy. And so if they haven't been prepared before they come to the medical oncologist, then it can be a second devastating experience for them. How do you explain to women sort of the concept of what adjuvant systemic therapy is? When I talk about adjuvant therapy, I tell them basically that cancer is a disease that can involve other organs of the body, and that even though the surgeon says that they got it all, there can be microscopic seeds of tumor that are already present in other parts of the body, I use the analogy. I say that basically in order to detect a cancer, there's got to be about a billion tumor cells in one spot, and you can put that on the end of your fingernail. And I think at that juncture, they understand that they could have 100,000 tumor cells sitting in a bone someplace or a lung, and none of our tests are going to detect that. And then I go on basically to say that whatever therapies we do are likely to benefit only a few patients. And we've got to treat 100 patients because we don't know who the unlucky, let's say, 15% are and the lucky 85%. And that's sort of the way I would start a conversation of adjuvant therapy. I'm sure some women must say, or a lot of women might say, why can't we wait and see whether or not there really is a problem and treat at that point? Yes, many women do ask that question, and that's a triple whammy, because then you've got to tell the patient that even if we're discussing chemotherapy now, that the same chemotherapy that we're talking about increasing the likelihood of cure, that same chemotherapy used when the cancer has come back in some other area of the body will not cure. Why is that? 
I think it's a matter of tumor mass, tumor bulk, that we're dealing with microscopic disease, and it's more likely to eliminate the last tumor cell or at least bring it down to a manageable level where the body's own host immune response can mop up the rest, perhaps. In metastatic disease, the tumor burden is higher, and that's why, essentially, we tell patients that we really can't cure metastatic disease. We know that there's a series from MD Anderson Cancer Center where 2.5% of patients are disease-free at 15 years after the diagnosis of metastases, but 2.5% is pretty low. So when you evaluate a woman in this situation, scans might have been done, whatever can be done, you are not able to detect cancer anywhere, and yet you're trying to estimate what the chance is that at some future point the cancer is going to, quote, come back or recur. That's correct. So how do you determine what that likelihood is? Well, we basically have two tools. Either we have computer-based tools Or now, for a certain subset of women, we have a new genetic-based assay called Oncotype. And there are at least two adjuvant tools. The one that I tend to use is Adjuvant Online. And you basically plug in some numbers from the patient's pathology report, their age, and it will generate an estimate based on the cumulative medical literature what that particular woman's likelihood of being disease-free is or their overall survival at 10 years. Or cancer-free. Correct, cancer-free. So this is a computer predictive model that you as an oncologist utilize. What are some of the factors that go into that? The computer model takes age, their comorbidities, meaning are they in good health, are they in failing health, are they frail, Do they have diabetes, heart failure, et cetera? It takes a look at the tumor size. It takes a look at the tumor grade, the number of lymph nodes. Grade being what it looks like under the microscope? Yeah. Tumor grade is determined on the basis of how close it looks to normal breast tissue. So there are basically three grades. One is well-differentiated, which looks more like normal breast tissue, poorly differentiated, which is kind of wild-looking under the microscope, and then, of course, intermediate is between those two. And you mentioned the lymph nodes. Yeah, the lymph node status is divided up into whether the lymph nodes are negative, whether there are one to three involved, four to nine involved, or greater than nine. And I guess nowadays a lot or probably most women are having the sentinel node procedure done. And if no tumor is seen in the sentinel nodes, two or three nodes, they usually don't have any more nodes taken out and are considered node negative? That's correct. Patients who have sentinel nodes that are negative usually do not go on to a full axillary lymph node dissection or removal of the first two levels of lymph nodes underneath the arm. So this computer model or predictive model then gives you a likelihood of the patient developing a cancer recurrence over the next, what, 10 years? Yes, that's correct. What types of numbers that you would see in that situation? Well, most of the time, even in some of the best risk situations, you seldom hit 90%. And so going back to before we had computer models, we learned from studies of Paul Peter Rosen that even for some of the best-risk tumors less than a centimeter in size, the 10-year and even 15-year disease-free rate, the best that he could see was about 88%. 
And so still, even with the very best risk tumors, it seems as though there could be a 12 to 14% chance of recurrence. I guess we should clarify here that we're talking about so-called invasive breast cancer. There's also the so-called non-invasive breast cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ. What about that? Ductal carcinoma in situ, the only adjuvant therapy that we talk about is tamoxifen, or we are offering a clinical trial for patients who have had a lumpectomy and radiation, randomizing between tamoxifen and anastrozole, or arimidex. So for DCIS, chemotherapy has no role. And although DCIS is very frequently hair to new positive, there is also no role at the present time for Herceptin in that situation. What's the cure rate just by surgery or surgery and radiation therapy to the breast with DCIS? The cure rate for DCIS with the gold standard, which most people don't use in this day and age, which would be a mastectomy, removal of the entire breast, is 99%. You can't get much better than that. So it's really a different kind of situation than what you were describing with the invasive breast cancer or even with negative lymph nodes. Those women might have a 10% or more chance of eventually dying of the disease. That's correct. So then the issue comes up, can you improve those odds, whatever they might be, 10%, 12%? What about the patient, for example, who might have a bunch of positive lymph nodes, five positive nodes or something like that, without any further treatment? What kind of chance of relapse would they be facing? Well, women with multiple positive nodes, worst-case scenario is a patient with perhaps 10 or more positive nodes. And going back to the computer model, I would venture that maybe if you did nothing other than surgery, the overall potential being disease-free might be in the 15 to 20% range. So you may be looking anywhere from a 10% risk of recurrence up to an 80% or more chance of recurrence. Now, how is that affected by systemic drug treatment, and how do you decide what kind of drug treatment to recommend or consider? Well, we have different types of drug treatment, and in this day and age, we have really three choices. One would be chemotherapy, one would be hormonal therapy, and the other would be trastuzumab or Herceptin. And these are not mutually exclusive, and we use them in different permutations and combinations depending on the individual patient and the individual patient's potential risk for recurrence. So how do you make that decision or assess what kind of therapy to use or recommend? We look at all of the parameters, and we look at the computer models, and if the patient has a tumor that is estrogen receptor positive and has negative lymph nodes, we look at the Oncotype DX assay. And we come up with projections from either the computer model or Oncotype DX, or in some cases both, because they may give divergent information, and then try to make a decision with the patient. And the patient is a partner in all of these decisions. How best to proceed? Obviously, some of the easier decisions are in patients with a large number of positive lymph nodes, Their prognosis is very guarded if they were to do nothing. And so our approach here would be to recommend strongly that they take chemotherapy. If they are also positive for hormone receptors after the conclusion of chemotherapy and after giving radiation therapy, because patients with multiple positive nodes should also receive radiation therapy 
either to the breast if they've had a lumpectomy or to the chest wall if they've had a mastectomy. But in addition, they should receive radiation above and below the collarbone. So basically, for these very high-risk patients, we're talking about chemotherapy followed by radiation. If they're hormone receptor positive, they should go on hormonal therapy. And certainly, if they are hair to new positive, they also should receive trastuzumab. Can you talk about the common endocrine therapies that are utilized and how they work? The most common endocrine therapies that we're talking about in the adjuvant situation today are tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors. And tamoxifen was the gold standard in the adjuvant setting for probably 20, 25 years until the aromatase inhibitors, which are anastrozole, letrozole, and exemestane, challenged tamoxifen. And all of them have been found to be superior to tamoxifen in terms of their effectiveness. And for the most part, the aromatase inhibitors are better tolerated as well. Can you talk a little bit more about how the aromatase inhibitors work? Well, we can start with how tamoxifen works. And tamoxifen works by binding to the estrogen receptor and interfering with the normal attachment of estrogens to the receptor. So that's the basic way that tamoxifen works. The aromatase inhibitors work in a very different way. Aromatase inhibitors work only in women who are postmenopausal. The reason for this is that young women make large amounts of estrogen from their ovaries. And the aromatase inhibitors really would be insufficient in terms of blocking that amount of estrogen. Now, after the menopause, ovarian production of estrogens essentially cease. And so the adrenal glands, which are little glands sitting on top of the kidneys, make first male hormones that are then converted by an enzyme called aromatase, which is located throughout the body, but largely in fatty tissue, to female hormones. So really, it starts out as male hormones made by the adrenal gland, converted to estrogens by this enzyme aromatase. And so these small amounts of estrogen that are produced by the adrenal gland obviously have the capability of stimulating tumor growth. Otherwise, these aromatase inhibitors wouldn't be as effective as they are. And they are quite effective in blocking the production of these small amounts of estrogen from the adrenal gland. Now, by using endocrine therapy, whether, for example, tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor in this adjuvant situation after a woman has had surgery, how does that affect their chance or risk of having a cancer relapse in the future? Well, the results are excellent with these drugs, and aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen will significantly decrease the risk of recurrence. And ironically, but hopefully easier to understand, is that the higher the risk of relapse, the greater the benefit of any therapy that we give. So I guess you can look at it one way. Let's say that a woman has a 12% chance of recurrence, and that's a very good risk tumor. If she has a 12% chance of recurrence, how much could any treatment really improve? You can't do better than if you try to cure 100%. You really can't. We're not able to cure 100% of women. 
we're able to cure maybe 50% of women. So 50% of 12 is about 6%. And is that the kind of effect you see with hormonal therapy, cutting it in half? Yes. Hormonal therapy would essentially cut the relapse rate in half. So you have a relapse rate of 12%, it might come down in the range of 6%. Yes. And if you had a relapse rate of 80%, then that same hormone that gave a 6% benefit to the woman we just talked about could give a 40% benefit for the woman who is at very, very high risk. So you're cutting in half a much higher risk. Correct. What about HER2? What is that? HER2 is a very interesting gene. The analogy is basically that HER2 has important functions in everybody's body. I have two HER2 genes, one from my mom, one from my dad, and Neil Love has two. Somehow, something goes awry in tumors, and about 20% of women have tumors where this gene, instead of having two copies, may have 15 copies. And by having 15 copies, the normal function of the gene is interfered with, and this aberration causes aggressive behavior of the tumor. And where does trastuzumab or Herceptin fit in in dealing with these kinds of tumors? Herceptin is an anti-HER2 new. And just as estrogen has receptors in the tumor cells, if you're HER2 new positive, then the HER2 new receptors on tumor cells can be interfered with. And trastuzumab binds to the HER2 new receptor. So it's like an antibody that blocks the receptor? Correct. And by using the Herceptin, how does that affect risk of relapse? The results presented in 2005 indicated a very striking advantage with Herceptin. So the absolute benefit was approaching 20%, and that's extraordinary. When we talk about different ways of reporting benefit, so for instance, a few moments ago we talked about a 50% benefit from estrogen antagonists. And the benefit of Herceptin, again, is about 50%. And then that would have to be additive on top of other things that are given, such as chemotherapy and hormonal therapy. What about chemotherapy? How does that affect the risk of relapse? For the most part, the risk of relapse by chemotherapy is a bit more modest than with hormonal therapy or Herceptin. And I think it largely is more like a 30% reduction. Now, there are many different kinds of chemotherapy that are utilized in this situation. What are some of the common treatments, and how does an oncologist decide which one to recommend? In terms of chemotherapy, one of the earliest regimens that we used was a combination of three drugs, CMF. And that's short for cytoxan, methotrexate, and 5-fluorouracil. And CMF was really the first generation of chemotherapy that we used starting in about the 1970s. Also, a first-generation regimen substituted methotrexate and 5-fluorouracil with adriamycin. And so another regimen, AC or adriamycin and cytoxan, was generally given for four doses or three months. And the CMF regimen is commonly given for six months. 
Most oncologists, at least academic oncologists that I'm aware of, many of them do not use much CMF or AC anymore. That was substituted in the 1980s, early 1990s, by giving six doses of an adriamycin-based regimen. And in Europe, the drug epirubicin replaced adriamycin. So now we've got two regimens, FAC and FEC, where the FAC is with adriamycin and the E is with epirubicin. And both of those regimens were given with two other drugs, cytoxan and 5-fluorouracil. Now, currently, the mainstay of treatment for women with node-positive breast cancer, where the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes, largely involves third-generation regimens, which usually include adriamycin and epirubicin, and also involve the taxanes. And in the adjuvant setting, those are taxol and taxotere. Currently, another new drug would like to be used in the adjuvant setting, and that's abraxane, which is another new way of giving taxol. But currently, we don't have approval by the Food and Drug Administration for the adjuvant use of abraxane. So what are some of the common regimens or treatment approaches utilizing these taxanes? Well, there are four regimens that I think are the most important ones for the time being. The first that is used by most oncologists would be the use of AC, which is adriamycin and cytoxan, followed by taxol, but given on an every two-week schedule, the dose-dense approach. And in order to do that, one has got to give Nulasta on the day after chemotherapy administration. The reason for the use of Nulasta is to enable the regimen to be given at two weeks rather than the usual three-week interval that we use for most other regimens in the adjuvant situation. Chemotherapy is given intermittently on a two-week or three-week basis because the chemotherapy commonly drops the white blood count that can lead to infection, and that suppression usually occurs at day 10 to 14 and may last up until day 17. And so consequently, without a drug like Nulasta, you have to administer the chemotherapy at three-week intervals. But by using the Nulasta, the growth factor, you're able to shorten the time up to two weeks. Correct. And what does that do? What's the advantage of giving it every two weeks? Well, my good friend Larry Norton has a hypothesis that he has good mathematical modeling for that indicates that more frequent administration of drugs might lead to a greater cell kill of these tumor cells, and that could then lead to an improvement in survival and outcomes. How do you find people tolerating the dose-dense AC paclitaxel regimen? Well, some women tolerate it quite well, and I know that Larry Norton from Memorial Sloan Kettering really wanted to have it renamed as the toxicity-reducing regimen. I don't know that I necessarily think that the toxicity is dramatically reduced. I have a number of women who have a tough time with this because the extra week that you get in the every three-week regimens allow a bit of recovery because during that third week, most women are feeling normal. And if they're coming in at two-week intervals, sometimes the fatigue that is a very common problem with chemotherapy, even in the absence of anemia, 
I mean, if it's associated with anemia, we can treat that. We have two very good drugs that can treat it with either Procrit or Aranesp. But fatigue, even in the absence of anemia, is very common. And so the fatigue, I think, is what gets a lot of these women who are on the dose-dense regimen. What's the most common regimen that you utilize yourself in your practice if the patient's not going to be in a research study for if they have positive lymph nodes? I actually review the four major regimens with them. And sometimes I've taken to using combinations of those regimens. Theoretically, one should use the ones where we have level one evidence. Level one evidence is where there have been large-scale controlled randomized trials against a proven comparator that was a previous standard. And so the four regimens that have this type of evidence are the dose-dense AC followed by taxol regimen, Another one is giving all three drugs together by giving taxotere, adriamycin, and cytoxan for six doses, the so-called TAC regimen. Two other regimens come from Europe, and here adriamycin, which we've used in TAC in the United States and AC followed by Taxol, has been replaced by epirubicin. And in the French study, they gave FEC for three doses, followed by taxotere for three doses. And in the Spanish study, they gave FEC for four doses, followed by taxol for eight doses. I want to go back a little bit to some of the tissue things that we were talking about. It seems that based on what you're saying, the fact that hormone therapy can reduce the chance of relapse significantly in patients who have an ER estrogen receptor positive tumor and that trastuzumab or Herceptin can significantly reduce the chance of cancer relapse in patients who have a HER2-positive tumor, it would seem that it would be critical to make sure that the assays done for those two substances are done accurately and correctly. Well, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptors, and HER2-NU are critically important in clinical decision-making. And here we have a problem in the United States. And that is that in the old days, we used to have a major quality control mechanism that all the pathologists followed. And as of right now, we really have a morass, a real problem, not only with HER2-new testing, but also with estrogen and progesterone receptor testing. Every laboratory has the capability of doing immunohistochemistry, a certain type of test, And you can do that type of test for estrogen, progesterone receptor, and HER2-NU. But the problem is, is that these assays have not been stringently standardized. And only now there's an outcry from the medical oncologists, and hopefully from the patients, as they start to recognize that there is a major problem with quality control of our hormone receptor assays and also our HER2-NU assays. And this has been the subject of guideline meetings from the NCCN and from ASCO. These are some of our regulatory bodies that draft guidelines. And the American College of Pathologists have come together with the NCCN and come together with the ASCO in order to come up with guidelines to mandate strict quality control. But we are not there yet. 
So the problem is that a patient has these assays done, all the patients have the assays done of the tumor, but there may be a false negative result or false positive result. In other words, an inaccurate assay. Correct. And unfortunately, these inaccurate assays could be present anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the time, and that's frightening. And so I guess the problem is if they really are, let's say, that the tumor is called estrogen receptor negative, for example, or HER2 negative, but in fact it really is positive, then patients are not going to receive therapies like endocrine therapy or trastuzumab or Herceptin that could help them in a significant way. That's absolutely correct. And I guess that if it's called positive but it's really negative, they're going to be getting the therapy and it really isn't going to help them and it'll expose them to the risk of therapy. That's correct. So what can a patient do or a medical oncologist do to try to ensure that the test is done correctly on their tissue? What I tend to do is I retest if there's going to be something that is going to change the way I treat a patient. So it's not infrequent for me to have immunohistochemistry assays for hair to new. And I'm very concerned about quality control. Now, if you're in a major university setting, usually it's okay. Maybe large volume laboratories, but a patient's not going to know who did their assay. And a lot of times the oncologist doesn't even know who did their assays. Whenever it's going to alter my decision-making, for hair to new, I'll order a fish assay. What's a fish assay? A fish assay is a different type of assay for hair to new. And it's my strong feeling that it is a more reliable test than immunohistochemistry done by the average pathology department. Now, having sat through guideline committee meetings, this is a matter of great contentiousness. And the guidelines are not going to endorse a fish assay for every woman with breast cancer. Hmm. So consequently, I fear that until the American College of Pathology mandates quality control for immunohistochemistry, that we're going to continue with a major problem in terms of reliability of our assays. I fall into the category of medical oncologists who believe very strongly in fish testing, largely because I have to deal with large numbers of laboratories. I don't have a good quality control system in one designated laboratory for the patients who are coming to me. So I am very free to order fish assays for hair to new if one hasn't been done. Likewise, if I get negative estrogen and progesterone receptor assays, and yet those assays do not fit with the overall clinical and pathological criteria, in other words, it just doesn't smell right. There's something wrong here. The estrogen and progesterone receptor assays look like they should be positive because the tumor is, looks good under the microscope. So I'll send the estrogen and progesterone receptor assays off to a reference laboratory that I trust. And when you do that, do you normally see that you get the same results or different results? Things seem to be improving slightly, but anecdotally what happened was I did this about three years ago, 
And I had a patient who was racked with pain, had metastatic breast cancer in all the bones of her body, and has been treated with chemotherapy based on estrogen and progesterone receptor assays done in a prestigious institution. And I said, what if that was wrong? And I sent the tissue off, the same tissue that was said to be estrogen and progesterone receptor assay negative, to Dr. Allred in Baylor in Houston, Texas, who is an acknowledged world leader in hormone receptor assays. And he said, this is strongly positive for both of the receptors. This woman went from being almost wheelchair-bound to going on hormonal therapy and getting two wonderful years of remission out of her first hormonal therapy. So I said, okay, well, that's a fluke. And then I sent a second one, and it came back positive. So I sent 30 of them down to Allred, all estrogen, progesterone, receptor negative. And of the 30, about 30% of them came back as showing some element of hormone receptor positivity. And so that made me very, very nervous. And so consequently, whenever there has to be an important decision made, I'll send it off probably to Dr. Allred. The last thing I want to ask you about is the Oncotype DX assay. You mentioned that as something that you utilize in some of your patients. Can you talk about what it is and how you use it? The Oncotype DX assay is a multiple gene panel that can be performed on tumor tissue even after the tumor tissue has already been taken out, the patient doesn't need a new biopsy. There are 16 genes in this assay that go to determine the virulence of the tumor. And there are five reference genes that just go into making sure that the assay is functioning properly. And with this 21-gene panel, there is something called a recurrence score that is generated. So the genes that have been chosen, I mean, you have to think that where did these genes come from? Well, you have many thousands and thousands of genes in the human genome. And there are different ways of predicting which genes may be important and which genes aren't. And that goes beyond the scope of this discussion. But the company, Genomic Health, did a lot of research and came up with this panel. And then they validated the panel against some large retrospective series of patients, patients that have already been treated with tamoxifen and patients who were treated without tamoxifen. And they took a look at just how predictive their gene panel was in a very large series. So they chose a series where 85% of women were disease-free at 10 years on tamoxifen, and then they divide them up on the basis of their oncotype scores. And patients who had low scores, the risk of recurrence was not 15%, which is what would have been predicted. I said 85% of the women were disease-free at 10 years, meaning 15% of patients relapsed. Of the whole group. Of the whole group. And then if you subdivided that group on the basis of oncotype scores... If the patient had a low score, their risk of recurrence was really low. And if the patient had a very high score, it was 70%. And then another study was done to indicate that women with high scores did not benefit at all from the use of tamoxifen. And so that's a group of patients that chemotherapy really should be used in. 
And the flip side of it was that if a patient had a very low score, the benefit of chemotherapy is likely to be very, very low in the 1% to 2% range. And so why submit a patient to the toxicities of chemotherapy if they have a low oncotype score? So the place that we're still in a quandary is in the intermediate group. And so a large-scale clinical trial has begun where women will be randomized on the basis of their oncotype score so that if the oncotype is low, they don't get chemotherapy, they only get hormones. If the oncotype score is high, they get chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy, which would be a standard. And if they had an intermediate score, they would be randomized to receive either hormonal therapy alone or chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy. And it's in that group of women currently that we have the biggest dilemma, the medical oncologist and the intermediate oncotype score. And before we had an intermediate oncotype score, we have a 15% recurrence rate, let's say, or a 20% recurrence rate. Who should get chemotherapy, who shouldn't? And so this new protocol, hopefully, six or seven years from now, will tell us whether intermediate oncotype scores need chemotherapy or not. So what do we do for now? Well, we're back to the drawing board with the doctor sitting down with the patient, going through the best prognostication that we can come up with, and discussing the risks, hazards, and potential benefits of hormonal and chemotherapy with the patient.